0: Free Wi-Fi. It's a podcast. I don't have a name for it anymore. I'm, I've been, I used to call it a workshop podcast, but I don't know what to call it anymore. It's just a podcast, whatever. <laughs> 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 and today we actually bring quality content.
1: Hi, I'm Esteban Fajardo. I'm the co-host.
0: I'm Catherine Fox. I'm one of them as well. And we have a special guest today. Guess who it is? It's it's
1: Mike.
0: It's Mike. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is Mike Effenberger. We're friends. Hello. From college, and we love him. Welcome.
2: Thank you. This is great. We're super glad to have you. Um We've been having coherent conversations for like the last hour, and now that we actually have to introduce ourselves, it's just all gone out the window and it makes me so
1: happy.
0: This is this is every episode. <laughs> I, I edit most of it out. I love it, it.
1: Just eventually, eventually it starts. and Eventually yeah, it starts. Yeah. I yeah. guess that's what's happening right now. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for having me.
0: Yeah. No, we're super excited. You are our second guest. Hell
1: yeah. Yeah, we had Jocelyn share mm-hmm. so many tips on making a small game around Halloween time.
2: Well, I'm extremely humbled to share such prestigious guest company. Jocelyn's the best.
1: To introduce you, Mike, you've done you've done a lot of stuff. So you've been a designer- You've been a producer. Mm -hmm. You have uh, much more of a film background than any of us here, too. And so there's a lot that you can talk about and teach us.
2: Let's see. Um, Yeah, grew up in Orange County. I went to SC to study film and television production. But when I started, there were two things that were going on. One was The Game, which was a new initiative by some very great and kind members of the SCA faculty as well as some uh, grad students at the time uh, to get all the different disciplines within SCA to interact with each other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so through this card game, you would have various prompts to create animation, to create a game, to create a short film, and you would all combine your collective talents to form this ultron of <laughs> multimedia and it was a ton of fun and through that i started to get to know the imgd students and scene in addition to that i attended IndieCade for the first time and it was this really eye-opening um, experience where i would see all of these independent developers whose work was really influential to me if not just outright enjoyable and to not only get to interact with them but see how like human they were and how little pretense was accompanied with having a discussion about their work and about potentially entering the industry
0: it was the authenticity that you yeah I
2: i was humbled by the authenticity and the generosity and the willingness to share not only company, but knowledge. Um, That was something that was in entertainment seemed so rare that I knew I wanted to work within that field. And so after my freshman year, I set out to double major uh, in both film and in games. (laughs) Um, It was a lot. Yeah. (laughs) There was a lot going on, and by the end of it, um, yeah, I ended up directing a thesis film while also serving as a designer on a thesis games project called Howie and Yarla, which is one of my favorite projects that I've worked on, Mm -hmm. and uh, from working on Howie and Yarla, um, kind of solidified a working relationship that I already had with some of my best friends at the time, uh, and then kind of took that energy and channeled it into creating a project for the Dare to Be Digital festival, which we wanted to do after you guys uh, went through it and seemed to have like such a great time. So we made a little project called Ectoplaza.
0: And didn't didn't Ectoplaza? Didn't you release you released that?
2: Yeah, it came out on we the we did. U. It came out on the Wii U. Yeah, and that kind of helped me establish some contacts at Nintendo, uh, which were uh, which we then kind of used to help uh, get uh, a later title that I worked on, Aegis Defenders, onto the Switch platform, which was great and a really good fit for that game. But yeah, after Dare to Be Digital, um, we got a contact with Nintendo. I kind of hustled around uh, like PAX and other conventions that I was attending or, or speaking at um, to be able to bring it to a platform and kind of manage to make that work. Um, I'll, I'll do a brief detour to elaborate on that a little bit, so if you're an independent developer, and you think you're in a somewhat similar position where you're like, hey, I've got this game, um, but I, and I want to get it onto a console platform, but I don't know how to do it. Um, if you go to PAX or GDC or any sort of games festival where a big publisher is present and they also have an indie floor showcase... More often than not, there are representatives of the company on the show floor. And I, I didn't really know kind of what I was doing. I just knew I wanted to find a Nintendo person, show them some footage. Um, I actually found some indie developers. I found some people from 13AM Games who were really sweet uh, and nice guys. And I, I had footage of Ectoplaza on my phone. Yeah. And I showed it to them. I had like a minute, a minute trailer that was really rough. But I was just like, here's our game. We think it, it's a platformer. We think it'd be really good on Nintendo consoles. And they were like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. Um, They're like, you know what? Like, you say you want to put it on Nintendo. Like, uh, actually, one of our reps is here. Yeah. Our, like, third-party managers. Like, you should uh, go talk to them. And then they they introduced me, and I talked to them. And they said, yeah, absolutely. This looks like something that could be on the console. Let's uh, get you, like, a developer portal and get you all set up. And so... Long story short, just having some artifact or representation of your game that you feel adequately conveys what it's about and its mm-hmm. energy.
0: Doesn't um, necessarily have to be playable. It doesn't have to be playable.
2: It doesn't have to be video either. But I, having something mm-hmm. um, that gets across what you're doing. some I, I always refer to it as just as an artifact yeah, uh, uh, something yeah
0: that, that's that a good is, word for it.
2: Yeah, that is readily presentable.
0: really easy um, to carry around, yeah.
2: Yeah, it can can really come in handy, you know, at the right place in the right time. I kind of owe all of like I owe that groundwork to us getting the launch on Nintendo platforms and, and having kind of a good developer relationship there. And I think that also works for publishers um, or at least getting initial conversations started. Um, but of course, when, you know, when, when you're hustling, right, always good to be courteous and considerate of others and r- respect their time.
0: Mm-hmm. And this is in the context of like a conference or a- a- any yeah. context, really, that you're just walking up to somebody, you yeah. talking yeah. about, gathering, indicating.
1: As long as they are in a place where they are also looking, like they have to also be in a spot where they are being receptive yeah. to this sort if, of stuff. If
0: they're grocery shopping, don't, <laughs> maybe not.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, so anyway,
2: we you know got that relationship working. We formed a company called Syndicate Atomic to publish. Uh, that company is still going today. Um, it most recently uh, helped to publish one of its members' uh, solo projects, uh, Me Less Than Three, their game uh, Luca. So while we were working to pu- ultimately publish and release Ectoplaza, I was also working at Disney Interactive as a product manager. Ultimately, my time with them was, was not extended. I was let go. And um, my good friend Max, who is a producer on the project uh, Aegis Defenders, uh, reached out to me and said, Hey, like you know, you did level design on Howie and Yarla. Would you want to do um, level design and even some systems design on um, this project? And I said, Yeah, yeah absolutely. And so... Uh, I transitioned to a level designer role on uh, Aegis Defenders, which is a kind of Metroidvania tower defense mashup where you um, explore these ancient ruins and in search of these very powerful um, uh, kind of holy relics in this little fantasy world. Um, and use the resources that you collect along the way to build structures to defend and ultimately secure these relics yeah. once you find them. And that was, that was some of the most fun I've had on a project.
0: And you were um, a level designer on that, right?
2: I, yeah, I was a level designer. Uh, the level design was really fascinating. Like, it, it, was, it was everything. It wasn't just level design. It was also, like, like our economy. It was like systems design and and how much damage uh, enemies could take, how much damage they dealt to structures. I I had a great time working on it. It was a very unique challenge.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Um, Working within the constraints of some pretty Mm well-defined genres. And I kind of enjoyed the creativity that came out of those limitations. And and it was a really fun time. I I had a great time.
0: And did you... Go to Treyarch from there or was there?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So, yeah. So, so as the project was wrapping up, a lot of my work with like the level design and systems design was, was completed. I wanted to take on a, a triple job. Kind of was always something I wanted to try at yeah. least, you know, I, wa- right. I wanted to, to say like I worked on a, 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 you know, a AAA title, you know, especially if it's in a franchise that I was already, you know, somewhat familiar with. And so I had an opportunity to start at Treyarch as a uh, production coordinator, which is an entry level production position in uh, the AAA space. And production means a lot of things to a lot of different companies. Like Mm -hmm. for example, producers at EA actually have a lot of uh, creative stake in a project. Mm. Whereas at a place like Treyarch, um pro- producers are really kind of strictly interested in you know if the development team is shipping a game the production team is shipping a development team uh-huh. like they're they're developing pipelines and processes gotcha. that ultimately make the team the best and happiest and most efficient team that it can that it can be with as little blockers in the way so and that that so that's kind of treyarch's mo when it came to production style um so when i started i started as a production coordinator and that role uh one of my core responsibilities was resolving uh local and global showstoppers within the studio if someone was blocked from accessing the game or being able to pull it up on their machine that's when i would get called in in doing that I learned a lot about their proprietary engine and software. I met a lot of people within the studio, and I also learned the value of, as a producer, while not needing to develop a mastery of said software engine, being willing to get your hands dirty and to at least have a working understanding of it helps immensely in your ability to not only be an advocate for your team but to communicate with them as well because if you yes. have an idea and an understanding of their tools and their process, it gives you better insight into how how much time they need outside of the work that they're actually going to do mm-hmm. as well as some of the you know other other challenges that they may face and that I think creates a, a more a uh, respectful and, and trustful working situation. So, if someone is in a producer role or, or is entering into the industry in a production role, I would heartily recommend when you when you have the time or the opportunity to always ask questions. Um, something that someone told me on my first day that I will always remember is the moment that you stop asking questions is the moment that it's assumed you you know. The material or understand it Mm -hmm. so anytime you encounter something that you don't have an answer to or you're unaware of what's happening like it is heavily encouraged that you like stop and you ask like what do you mean like what is this i actually don't understand um you know what what that thing that you just mentioned could we talk about it like people appreciate you asking questions um and and learning from them when they give you an answer um because that means there's going to be less interruptions in in just the general process no one's gonna no one's gonna look at you and be like like what who is this clown (laughs) (laughs) they don't they don't already know our internal engine that has only you know is still currently in development and has never been publicly released what like <laughs> totally a fear people have, is,
0: but it is it a won't fear happen. people. It's
2: a fear I have. Yeah, but if you take a moment and kind of analyze that fear, uh, kind of evaluate it, uh, you can kind of see that it's pretty unfounded, and ultimately could lead to a destructive habit of rushing to conclusions on certain things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, if it's any comfort for people at home who are struggling with this, I certainly did in my first couple of days on the job, I wanted to prove that I was getting things resolved and I was getting things done. So in a a public thread, or well, in an internal thread that was made public to about 300 people uh, within the company, I gave some horrible advice. Oh no. uh, Because I thought this was how the software worked and it absolutely did not work. Um, And if people followed through on the instructions that I gave, A whole lot of like just their general workstation setup would have been destroyed.
1: Oh no! And so I I was very
2: publicly (laughs) reprimanded for uh, in that thread for telling people that. Um, And I learned real quick uh, that it is always important when you don't know or feel when whenever you feel a pressure to give an answer, especially if it's an answer that you don't know. Like, take a step back and just stop. And just ask a question and be very transparent with the question and the level of comprehension that you have at that moment. And I think what you do in situations where you ask that question is you start a conversation. When when I propose a conver- or a question to someone, immediately especially if they, they come to me looking for an answer. If someone comes to me looking for an answer and I don't have it, and I ask a question in return, it turns it into a collaboration between the two of us. And now we're both working mm-hmm. together to come to an understanding. And we're both utilizing critical thinking skills to um, get the the response that we need. And I think that becomes a better learning experience for everyone. And I think that's applicable, not just within like, my workstation's busted, how do I solve it? But, you know, for anything. So that was a really good way to, to join that team, I felt. And ultimately, you know, uh, even though I absolutely flubbed it on that one example that I gave, <laughs> um, I I, old, I worked very hard. Um, I got a lot better um, to the point where I was kind of considered a local expert on a lot of like the more rudimentary stuff regarding the engine. And I got promoted to working with uh, Treyarch's core online engineering team As well as being the production lead for Xbox One platform development.
0: Wow! How long did it take you Um, to get to that point?
2: That took me five and a half months. Wow, that's
0: pretty Um, quick, actually. That's
2: a pretty fast change. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, people took notice, um, Mm -hmm. and in those in those roles, it was interesting because I really I consider myself much more comfortable in a design element. I would not yeah. call myself a programmer.
1: Mm-hmm. I
2: would yeah. certainly not call myself an engineer. Um, but I found when working with engineering teams that having, an again, an appreciation for the the software that they were using, even if I didn't have a mastery of it, in addition to leveraging like critical thinking for tougher situations, in, in the same way that we just discussed it, where we take a step back, we ask questions and we just kind of eliminate any variables that we can along the way Um, made it really easy for me to work with them in a production role. Um, And so I was really grateful for the opportunity to get to work with them because it helped me to get over um, not an anxiety, but just kind of, I I just kind of told myself like, Oh, well, I'm not an, you know, I'm not an engineer and, you know, and I I don't, I, I don't know if I could really work well with them because I don't have, a full mastery of that skill set, like by by being able to work in that role, um, I kind of got over it, got over that and feel like I have another skill set in my back pocket and, and i am now able to speak to an even wider uh, range of development experiences and, and be an advocate for even more teams than I was previously. Yeah,
1: because all you need is like enough of a familiarity to be able to communicate. Because like that's the most important part. is just being able to communicate across the the disciplines and with the roles that you're working with.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I had, a you know, so I learned a lot working at Treyarch. Um, I, de- my, I definitely grew my production, uh, set. after black ops four shipped. Um, I was just kind of at a point in my life where I, I really wanted to try something new, um, do something a little different. So I always loved, um, Seattle. Um, I had been, uh, I'd lived in Southern California my whole life and felt like, you know, maybe moving out of state could, could be a fun change. Um, so moved up north and then just recently got a, uh, job offer to work, uh, with 343 Industries on Halo Infinite as a producer.
0: That's so exciting.
2: Thank you. Yeah. I'm really excited. Uh, Halo is one of my all-time favorite franchises and as a kid, um, I was so invested in it that it got me to start writing writing short stories around the universe there's I definitely I do have some fan fiction oh my God. of Halo out there in the wild you have halo and it's horrible fiction. what's your fanfiction.net handle <laughs> uh, i never published it it was just stuff that i had at home that's fair um but you know I, but it started getting me to think critically about stories and storytelling um and then i also um got pretty involved uh, at, when Halo 3 came out, there w- uh, there was a mode called Forge, which is like a little map editor yeah, and mode yeah, editor. Yeah. And I made a lot of stuff in that. And some of it got pretty popular, actually. Um, really? Yeah. And I never really considered that game development. But looking back on it, it absolutely was. For sure, yeah. um, and then yeah. Um, and then also around when Halo 2 came out, um, I got really into the competitive scene and did a lot of, like, like, unofficial, like, MLG game battles <laughs> with other clans. Um, and so I kind of got the whole... I feel like Halo kind of gave me the whole range of experience when it came to, a game, like, being a player and, like, you know, like Bartel's, like, delineation of player types. Like, I feel yeah. like Halo, for me, hits, like, just about everyone. And it's cool because the role that I'm in, I'm going to be a producer on the sandbox team. And that is a a very large uh, cross-discipline team made up of artists, engineers, designers, um, sound, um, effects that are all working to create the assets that are going to make the player experience in the game. So things like character controller, enemy AI, uh, vehicles,
1: weapons, basically everything that makes a Halo game a Halo game. Yeah. All the things that as a level, like, so when you're a level designer, mm-hmm. you've got your kit that you're working from yeah. you with. Now you are building the kit or producing it. Exactly. It's
0: like an artist's palette.
1: Yeah. I'm
2: working working with the team that, that's creating that palette, um, which to me is like, I mean, Halo has so many different parts that really make that experience, but I've always felt like, like Halo games are at its best. When their sandbox is at its best, mm. uh, mm-hmm. and, and everything's filling a unique role, and you know, I, not not to get too into like what what makes a good Halo sandbox, but just to say like it's something I'm very passionate about, and I'm really excited to get to contribute to, and I'll be working with design, uh, audio, animation. Um, I've always, I've always enjoyed producer roles in the sense that I get to have a very top-down view on the entire development of a game. Yeah, um, I've, I, in, in the past, I've filled so many different roles and, and worked with so many different teams that um, it's really gratifying to me to get to continue working uh, you know, across the board with every department um, on the development of a game. And that's something that the producer role affords me and, and I really enjoy it. I always feel like I'm learning something
1: new. So i've got some I've got some questions that I'm curious about mm-hmm. um, because you have worked on uh, some of the the smallest of teams and now some of the largest of teams in terms mm-hmm. of just like in the world game development um, what are what are sort of the biggest key differences between between producing for those two things?
2: So when working on smaller independent teams there it was a very holistic development cycle. Uh, everyone was in close communication with each other. It was very easy to see when new things were being added or taken away. There, there was more opportunity for collaboration, or, or an easier opportunity, I think, for collaboration between departments without the aid of production. So, design—it's yeah. easy. I think it would be much simpler for design to talk to audio, audio to talk to design. Maybe it would require a little less coordination to make that that conversation happen. I know at Treyarch at the time. Um, that I was there it it was a very kind of waterfall um, style like as a producer you know I was producer for the core online team there was a producer for the core engine team there were producers for the gameplay design team so um, people kind of owned certain disciplines and um, everyone worked a little bit more independently on their own things And the greatest points of friction occurred when there are were dependencies between projects or between uh, disciplines and departments, and that's where producers really come into play, Um, because they help to mitigate those uh, dependencies, try to identify them well in advance of any sort of due date, um, and isolate them and figure out at what point in the pipeline or or roadmap for whatever feature is being developed. That those dependencies need to be tackled across teams. That I, I think I think is was a big part of it. Although I say this, and and I know that I like a lot of major uh, studios, at least their production teams are looking to move kind of more towards a, that holistic development uh, mindset that I was mentioning earlier with um, that I'd be coming into with three four three, where you have a, a larger department. You know, let's just say like the sandbox team. For example and you have a collection of disciplines within that department and then you break yeah. them out into subsets of features within that department and gotcha, everyone's gotcha. working together so while i haven't started working there yet i'm very excited to um kind of see what that what that holistic experience is like within the larger scope of a triple a production at which point, I think I'll be able to, to really better speak to the differences between you know holistic development in an independent setting and holistic development in a um, in a uh, large scale AAA setting.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting because it sounds a lot like like programming. Where if you're making a very small project and you're programming something very small, then your scripts can you, you can afford to be messier with the scripts. Where like the dependencies within each script on each other, like there can be a lot more like crossover or. Um, Stuff, but if you're working on a large, Mm -hmm. larger scale project, like each script needs to fulfill its very distinct task, Mm -hmm. and the interdependencies of those need to be like limited as much as possible and handled by some kind of manager. And it's basically, on that case, like uh, producing it. It's interesting, I think, that there's sort of like an organizational comparison between those two. So I'm very curious how this other approach, uh, this more interdisciplinary approach. Mm Uh, how, how that works, but it sounds, yeah. it sounds super cool. I,
2: I think ultimately the difference is going to be uh, like anything at a larger scale, there's, there's going to be multiple stakeholders involved in a decision and there will be multiple reasons why um, a team would move in any one particular direction with a, a feature or an asset. There will be a, a lot of different needs to serve. And so being able to hone in, on the most important needs or how we can satisfy multiple with one specific direction will be key. You know, it, I think on smaller teams, you want to make a good game and, and you want to make it, you know, for your audience and maybe, maybe there are some marketing decisions involved, but those decisions are pretty transparent to the entire team. Um, yeah. with something like Halo, which at this point is a multimedia franchise, that has uh, uh, TV shows, books, uh, games, arcade experiences, uh, stage performances. Yeah, I, well, we're getting balloon there. animals. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm, no, I'm
1: I'm making things up, but
2: <laughs> you know, but there are so many different elements that are are go beyond game development, but are still cr- connected to the franchise as a whole. You know, like like if if the team is working to make a weapon look this one particular way, uh, but actually it n- turns out that, you know, due to the, this is a very extreme example, but like the lore <laughs> actually says in this book that it actually looks like this, yeah. you know, and there there could be a situation where someone says, actually, yeah, we do need to honor that. I think just the more variables that you put into any project, the, you know, the the more, like you really need a robust production team that can work to address all of that and identify it well enough in advance while keeping a um, you know, pretty solid pipeline um, in play that the entire development team buys into. And I think that's a pretty critical thing about production in general, whether it's a smaller team or a larger team. And, and this even talks a little bit about our idea of like coming, coming with a preconceived answer to something. Mm-hmm. Like every team is different. Every team has different needs. If you come onto a team thinking that you know what's already best for them, it's going to be very difficult for the team to buy into that uh, that pipeline or process, and they aren't going to respect it. And that's where you start getting, you know, you're you're late on milestones, you're you're missing things. Uh, there's poor communication between the team because uh, they don't feel like they need to communicate because mm. they they don't think the current pipeline set up to foster that communication is you know, even relevant. I think if you're a producer, you want to come onto a team, listen to what is currently working for them, what's currently not working for them, and what their number one concern is regarding the current development pipeline. Your concern becomes the immediate thing that you tackle and address in the next milestone or update if you can, and then they're, they're, the things that aren't working for them become your longer sort of roadmap that you work yeah. to, to wrinkle out um, and iron out uh, over the course of your time there. In the way that a designer is an advocate for the player, producer is an advocate for the development team. Like, mm-hmm. it's in their best interest to create an experience that works for that team. And so you really got to be, be receptive to, to their needs and, and to make it a collaboration with them. And whatever whatever development pipeline or production plan that you put into motion, it has to be something that they buy into.
1: Along that line, you've worked in teams as a producer and as mm-hmm. a designer. What, what sort of things have been able to make the relationship between those two roles easier?
2: I think it's really important to respect and understand the need. Like, it's, it's easy to micromanage, when you're a producer, it's easy to stand over someone's shoulder and be like, "Where's that thing that mm-hmm. we talked about?" I my my personal approach, or at least the approach that really worked for me in you know in my previous production role, I, I did everything I could to be the least invasive that I could when it mm-hmm. came to their time in the office. I tried to streamline as much of the, art, like, communication between the team as possible so that they could just focus on their work. And it was very intensive work um, where they really needed to kind of be by themselves and they needed to think. Um, Let them get in the and zone. Yeah. And, and, and I wanted to respect that process. And I know that for me, when I was designing, right, um, and I knew that I had a deadline up, like, I, you know, you could ask me how something's coming along or where it was going, but I, you know, like it's very hard to say until like it's done and we play test it and we get some ideas of, you know, what's working and what's not. Like you, you are making a product, right? You are making something that you're going to sell and put on the market, but there's a level of artistry and creativity involved that is deeply personal Mm -hmm. and requires Mm -hmm. a sort of almost almost like meditative element to it like there there needs to be a flow right just on a more like personal relationship note that I really try to respect in the working relationships that I cultivate and do as much as I can to give people the, the time that they need and to respect their assessments when they tell me how much time something is going to take I don't try and like, like be like, ah, but how much time can you really give me? The last thing you want to do is create a development schedule, uh, or or a standardized schedule and set of expectations that are built around them pushing themselves to their absolute limit because that doesn't create good work. Mm -hmm. Um, so when someone tells you, Hey, I don't think we're going to be able to make this, you know, like, like really take that to heart and ask what, what else can we do? You know, is there anything that we can move? Is there anything that we can cut? Is there anything that we don't need at this time? What can what can I do, you know, to to work with you to make sure that you have the time that you need to make this as good as possible while still respecting the milestones that we have? You know, worst case scenario, we can push it. So that's something that I definitely took away from my design experience.
0: Yeah, that's that's the secret to being a producer. Now we know. Now you, you can go. do it. It's that easy. Yeah, any, anyone can
2: do it. It's easy. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, right? Produ- production. There, there are a lot of social elements that are involved, yeah. right? You're constantly taking the the pulse of of your team and how they're doing, right? You know, or is everyone healthy? Is it a healthy working environment and atmosphere? What you're developing is is a workspace. You're developing mm-hmm. a, a a solid team.
1: So we're able, I think, to to look at games and I, I, can, I can identify a game and be like that's got some really good design like some really great systems working out there like mm-hmm. wow that's brilliant and stuff we can look at a game and we can be like dang that art is gorgeous it's a beautiful mm-hmm. beautiful game that game has good art mm-hmm. is there a way we can look at a game and be like that game's got some good production
2: that's a great question I think <laughs> I think a great way to answer that is go to the developer's twitter feed <laughs> <laughs> and go through their history and see how they were feeling. Is the team healthy? Are they really stressed out? Like, mm. it's, it's the if people, a right? Sequel, are they coming back? <laughs> yeah, because great games have been made under absolutely miserable conditions, right? Yes. Oh, absolutely, you know? for sure. Are, are people staying at the company that they just worked with? Are they leaving en masse? There are certain companies that have a certain... Um, aura about them right like oh, you yes. yeah you know maybe that's a little I mean I'm coming at it from like a, a positive right there are certain companies right. that you hear about where they've got this like this legacy uh, uh, of being uh, this is a good place like this mm-hmm. is a place that cares about its workers and that's mm-hmm. something that doesn't necessarily come from a project but maybe from multiple you know Right. It's, I think a great way to tell if production's good is, does the studio make another game? Like, <laughs> you know?
0: Another game with the That's same team, right?
2: Yeah. Do, do the people want to keep working together? Um, yeah. Does the studio stay af- afloat? So I guess it's easier to identify bad production sometimes than,
1: uh, than good production.
2: <laughs> it's, again, I think it's something, you know, it's, it's multiple projects, right? Like, it maybe isn't necessarily just one. It's a community, does the community stay alive? Um, it's, a very, it's a very
0: human industry. Yeah,
2: and, and I think production is really interested it, as much in the development process as it is in that human element of it. Be, mm-hmm. They facilitate the development process to help let that human element shine.
1: Yeah, I feel like sometimes when I'm like, working on stuff, when I'm presented with a problem, there's like the first answer, mm-hmm. there's the best answer, and then after some time, there's like my answer. Yeah, which might not be the best answer, but it's like sometimes the third, the third, uh, the third step in addressing is just like this is how I put myself sort of like into into um, how to, how to solve that sort of problem and thing, and that takes time. Mm-hmm. If you don't have the time, you go with the first answer, which won't be the best answer. If you have a little bit more time, you might be able to find the best answer, but that won't be the one with personality, mm-hmm. and uh, you don't have the same self satisfaction, I guess, from from doing that. Yeah. Currently.
2: But you know, you as a as a designer, like maybe maybe you know you get to you get to that third point, but haven't really been thinking about the time needed to get it to QA, you know, yep. <laughs> and get get the feedback right. That's like for production, it's it's allowing time for you to do that and and allowing time to get it the feedback that you need, um, yeah. and kind of recognizing that that larger that larger scope and cycle yeah. and moving all of these little. Uh, puzzle pieces together to mm-hmm. make the perfect roadmap and <laughs> timeline for everyone.
0: That feeds a little bit into one of the questions that I had: was if you are a person working on like a solo project or maybe a project with like two people, mm-hmm. what what are some things that you should do to be your own producer?
2: I think you should absolutely have milestones. I think you should have like a recurring milestone. You should have recurring play tests. And you should have an end date in mind. So it's all about sort of like habit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, um, and before you, to the best of your ability, spec stuff out as much as you can ahead of time. And, and this is all stuff that works for me. It's all totally different. But I find mm-hmm. like, you know, like, oh, okay, I have this idea for this thing. Like, let's flesh it out. And then, and then take a step back, look at the thing and say like, okay, what does this need? This needs audio, this needs art, this needs da-da-da-da-da, and like get an idea of like, okay, well, what needs to come first before I can even really start testing this thing? What's what's the bare minimum that I need? But, um, you know, it's an interesting question because I kind of ran into this again with um, the Ectoplasm going all the way back where it was right. like I was a yeah. stakeholder, um, you know, invest invested in making the best possible product and version of this idea as possible and I was also a producer where it was like this has to get out the door like ultimately it it has no value if if it's not out there no one can really play it.
0: Almost conflicting conflicting points.
2: Yeah exactly you know it's really if you're working on it strictly by yourself like honestly I think it's really tough like it, Mm. it it was extremely tough for me and I I think I gained a, a very a much greater appreciation for the distinction between those roles of designer stakeholder producer mm-hmm. after trying to maintain multiple roles myself. How would you
0: how would you manage that? Would you have like hours a day where you just do producing stuff versus just designer stuff or would you just like juggle it all at the same time? I
2: managed it poorly. <laughs> <laughs> I I would not call I am extremely proud. Of how Ectoplaza came out, I'm extremely proud of the the work that the team put in to do it, and it's you know it'll always be one of my personal favorites. Um, but it was a it, it was a it was a learning experience 100. Looking back, I don't you know I know what I did wrong, and I know I didn't you know it wasn't it wasn't the best, and and I I I would have allowed someone to have like a definite a more definitive say in the ultimate design direction than than I did. Or I would have let someone ultimately be more of the producer and really drive home the fact that like, we like, hey, like these things you're saying, they're cool, but like we ran the numbers and this is gonna take forever if we wanna get this in.
0: So you'd have divvied up the roles a little bit differently.
2: I would have divvied up the roles. And if you're doing this yourself, right? If this is a purely solo project, um, you need, to allow yourself the time and the 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 space mentally and physically to operate between those two roles you know be creative yeah. and then you know maybe later in the day or a certain time of the
1: day you take it you go for a walk whatever get lunch take a step back or you take manny the skeleton who's <laughs> another <laughs> room i should have brought your skeleton back here cause <laughs> you're the one who gave that gave that to me yeah you you set manny down you say manny you're the producer you have mike's spirit inside of you speak like let (laughs) let the skeleton speak to you legitimately
0: Mm -hmm. though like using using props for things like this can actually help
1: absolutely and like and like programming if you're trying to work through a bug sometimes it's easier to uh to talk it out to make sure like everything you're saying makes sense yeah and so there's Mm -hmm. like the old term of like rubber ducking where you like you keep a rubber deck duck on your desk and you like talk to it as a, instead of pulling someone else over to talk mm-hmm. to instead of them. Yeah, you know, as a good, as someone who I think did this very well, actually
2: talking about solo experience, um, is, uh, Syndicate Atomic member, Ecto Plaza, uh, designer and engineer and uh, solo developer and artist, uh, me less than three. I got to watch him go through the entire Luca development process, at least getting it to steam. And he was motivated mm. and he had a schedule. He had a regiment. He knew how long he wanted to work on the project. He didn't want to work beyond that timeline. And while, you know, certain things may slip or change, like he was dedicated to hitting that as best he could. And he had re- recurring, recurring feedback sessions, which manifested in the form of Twitter posts, with gifts of new things, new items that he was putting into the game. He'd have polls sometimes. He did Kickstarter updates. Um, not only did all of that help to get him feedback, even if it wasn't, you know, as concrete as playtest feedback, but it also helped serve to grow his community. His His personal community surrounding not just him, but the game grew significantly since he started development because he posted every single day. And he was very transparent mm-hmm. about that process, which I think really spoke to the community that he was that he was looking to release for that game. I respect the hell out of that and I he showed that you can absolutely fulfill those two roles, right? Um, Wasn't
0: Kevin doing production for that?
2: Kevin was doing <laughs> production, but but Colin That was later on.
0: Okay, so he was doing that solo for He was a, doing a, a solo for a while.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. And I don't, you know, and, and Kevin did a fantastic job. Kevin Kevin took the groundwork, at least some of the groundwork that that I observed and really ran with it. And I don't mean to diminish that role. I know you're listening right now, Kevin. Yeah, uh, there you go. (laughs) You did did good. Shout out to Kevin. (laughs) Yeah, Kevin did great. And if anyone needs a uh, producer or even a uh, community manager for their independent project, I would heartily recommend Kevin Wong. Kevin, I think, has an incredible ability to dissect and get to the heart and the artistry of whatever project he's working on and find the vocabulary to communicate that mm-hmm. to uh, a larger audience. And I do think, yeah, abs- uh, he was absolutely crucial in, in getting, getting Luca to the launch that it did. But just speaking to the experience of, uh, you know, of a solo development, I know Colin was able to make the progress that he did um, because he was able to, to set up that that regimen, set up those goals. And it takes a ton of discipline, um, but he did it. So, yeah, I, again, to, to distill that, um, setting up milestones, setting up recurring events, opportunities for feedback, mm-hmm. um, concrete dates. For those milestones and discipline that's really what it boils down to and if
0: you don't have any discipline like me don't Mm -hmm. do projects on your own
2: (laughs) it's not impossible to do but i know for me i i i just like working with other people
1: so this is a question whose usefulness is so marginal and narrow that i probably shouldn't even ask it but you did a lot of work also um like, with your background in, in film production and stuff, mm-hmm. producing something for a film is completely, absolutely, totally different, it seems, than yes. uh, doing something for a game. Because film, it's all about, like, getting everything ready for that one moment where, like, the cameras roll. And in game development is incredibly, like, iterative and going back over and making sure things are good and testing and testing. Mm-hmm. Did you feel like anything carried over when you were you were sort of transitioning between doing those two different things?
2: I, I really like production for game development. In comparison to production for film, film is very waterfall. You have your idea. That idea has to be set in stone, as immovable as it can possibly be. And then you you, you execute. You know, you have your pre production, you have your production, then you have your post production. Pre-production, you you build your foundation. Production, you build atop that foundation, and then editing is being like, oh my god, like, <laughs> what, <laughs> what can we save? <laughs> what this like half of this is going to like fall apart. What what do we <laughs> what do we need to knock down in order to build up the rest?
0: <laughs> um,
2: actually, you know, as far as like the relationship between film and uh, and game development. Um I found the relationship between being a designer and being an editor to be very similar. Uh um, really? I think in in both situations you're taking you know pieces that I guess in design this isn't always necessarily true, but at least in the you know when I was working level design I was taking the the props, the pieces that had been given to me and I was assembling a sequence of events that the audience can enjoy and experience and trying to manage their feelings and expectations through um, the flow in which I was introducing things. And Mm -hmm. I found that Mm -hmm. process to be very similar to editing where you're taking clips, you know, and you're managing how long do you linger? Yeah. You're managing pacing. You're, you're managing audience uh, anticipation and and, um, expectation
1: I'm going to go on like a brief tangent, but sure. uh, I've been reading through um, Brian Upton's situational game design book. It's a very slim volume. I think it came out fairly recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been incredibly interesting because it presents a, a sort of a new, like a sort of like a paradigm shift in terms of how to think about game design and stuff. Um by introducing the concept of anticipatory play, which hasn't really been sort of in like a traditional game studies vocabulary, mm-hmm. um, but is a really useful useful term, um, and the the big argument and shift in it that Brian Upton proposes is mm-hmm. to decenter interactivity as like the core the core element sort of of game design, mm-hmm. um, which sounds just like you unspeakable (laughs) in terms of uh, how how we've often considered it. But the argument goes like chess, 50% of the time you're not making a move, Um, but it's still, that doesn't make it a worse game. Mm -hmm. Having more interactivity doesn't make for better, more game. Um, And so how do we talk about and analyze and design for those moments of downtime when the player isn't uh, making what we would consider consequential choices Mm -hmm. um, in terms of an action and uh really what it comes down to is like making sure that those that that time where the player is, isn't interactive they're still very mentally engaged because they're dealing with anticipation and that yeah. and that anticipation is part of the play itself which was immediately yeah. useful in terms of like level design because sometimes you don't want the player to do anything but you still want them to be thinking yeah. and engaged because there's foreshadowing or other sort of stuff
2: and that that just comes down to in my opinion just good storytelling when do you yeah. when do you yeah. need to take a break Right. When do you need to turn up the gas? Like there's (laughs) right. You know, you know, uh, light a fire under him. Right. The moment where a player has a chance to think can be just as engaging as when they're asked to act.
1: Right. Think
2: thinking and and mental processing is a form of interactivity and engagement. The, what happens within a work is not strictly where the work ends right there's so much that's happening outside of
1: it yeah it's still active even if it's it's not interactive because a game might not react to that activity yeah it's still it's still making sure that those moments that aren't interactive are still active yeah um, engaging because that's what storytelling is it's like Mm -hmm. you want your audience to be uh just on the edge of their seat, mm-hmm. um, or turning the page constantly because they have to know what's what's coming next, and that's yeah. because they are engaged. They're actively thinking about. You know that stuff.
0: what game does this really well that I've been playing a lot of.
1: Oh no! What have you been playing?
0: Breath of the Wild, Legend of oh. Zelda. Mm-hmm. I've I've spent so much time just doing nothing in that game, just walking, mm-hmm. and just seeing yeah. what I stumble across just enjoying the world in general
1: yeah but your wandering is still very like yeah. engaging because uh, there's a, there's a lot of things in that game that can keep your curiosity going you mm-hmm. never know when you're gonna see something yeah
0: it's all just it's just curiosity that just keeps you going so I, I think I think mm-hmm. breath of the wild is a good example of, of what we're talking about
1: if, if I think about breath
2: of the wild too hard I kind of just freeze up and <laughs> like
0: <laughs> why I
2: start breaking down because like you said it's it's so good. Um, it's, like it's, it's it's other breath of the wild doesn't there's not too much that it does that really is kind of uniquely its own. There are a lot of other games that took that initial exploratory formula from the very first Zelda and ran with it and set up a lot of open world tropes that Breath of the wild then later learns from as well, but the way in which it the way in which it's able to communicate the Feeling of stumbling onto a new dungeon, um, or yeah. uh, finding a big, you know, big bad, right? A big boss mm-hmm. um, that would have previously been communicated via cutscene, but instead feels organic.
1: Yeah, you just see that yeah. Lionel out in a field, and you're like, "What's that?" <laughs> like uh,
2: a a reaction to the player's agency, and is like really really well paced in a way that continues to maintain my attention as I'm traversing these landscapes like it's just nuts Uh, it
0: really does feel like an adventure I think they really mm -hmm. they really nailed it
2: there are just very few moments in that game where I'm taken out of the experience when I find something it doesn't feel like it 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 feels like I found it it doesn't feel like like
0: like you you were led there
2: and, and the, the act of finding it it feels rewarding because it feels like the game wasn't expecting me to even right. though of course it was like the game was <laughs> a- absolutely new I was going to you know stumble upon this but it does you know it's not like here's your 10 minute cutscene you know not that yeah. cutscenes are bad by the way I love cutscenes uh, but but there's a time and a place and right. breath of the wild makes. Like I'm not, it, it, it I'm not supposed to find these things, and not in like a disturbing way, <laughs> but, or, or like a, like a you know a Cthulhu kind the, of way.
1: the horror game version yeah, of Breath of the Wild, yeah, it's every rock you
2: underturn. Yeah, this isn't cosmic horror. It's just kind of like whoa, like I did that, and the reward of finding it, and whatever animations or interactions or, or system related experiences that come from it like is the reward you know maybe a nice musical cue as well right. but that pay that the the action is not interrupted the pace isn't broken like you're still going it, it's just yeah damn uh, anyway I, I... <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah don't don't think too hard about it you'll get don't ahead. Think too hard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you mentioned that your your entry into like pursuing games as a as a as a career was kind of unexpected and unplanned you just kind of stumbled upon it you still have like a history of playing games as a kid
2: oh yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely So do,
0: do you have like a really formative game that you played um that really solidified your interest in games in general
2: uh yeah uh i like formative uh halo
0: <laughs> oh yeah like, we did mention that
2: <laughs> um when i grew up i wasn't allowed to have game consoles but my neighbor had them he had a nintendo 64 and he had an xbox and one day i went to his house and i saw him playing halo and i was like what the hell is this uh Mm -hmm. these the marines like they're on a spaceship and there are these bad guys and that that little guy is running away after the big one dies like is he scared is he scared of me am i powerful (laughs) um and the marines the marines are like saying like hell yeah and stuff Or, or they're they're cussing they're cussing they're upset like like it was just this whole world oh, and I was so, video games. yeah, I was so enraptured by it that whenever my neighbor was away, like was, you know, whether he was like do, doing something or was like at camp or what have you, and I was still in the neighborhood and around, I would go over to oh the house uh-huh. and the mom, you know, mom would answer the door <laughs> and, I, and I'd i be like, hello, Mrs. Parent. Like, Andy said it was okay if I went into his room and played on the Xbox for a bit. And she was like, oh, okay. And and so I'd go and I'd I'd open up his save file and I would start Uh. to play Halo uh, because I was so invested. And he was not fond of that, which rightfully rightfully he he shouldn't, you know, a bit invasive yeah. of me, but I just had to get more. <laughs> uh, you had to get that Halo face. I Yeah, I, I really did. I, I, it felt it felt like there was something for everyone in
0: mm-hmm. that
2: game. And it spoke to a lot of different interests that, that I had uh, relating to games all within one. And then the other thing with Halo is that Bungie... Uh, the, the you know the, the original developers of Halo um, started doing these things where they would make podcasts they always had a very strong community they had a very strong online presence and were very invested in creating forums um, and provide a space for people to discuss this thing that they were all interested in and then there were fan spin-off sites like halo.bungie.org where people contributed like short stories you know fan fiction artwork mm-hmm. Um, and the developers would hop, hop on and they'd contribute some concept art and stuff. The, all that, like in addition to the podcast, which I listened to religiously anytime it came out, really helped contribute the idea that video games were made by human beings. And I became very invested in the idea of being one of these people and working with these people. I think that, and then, you know, going to SC and seeing that, like, oh, this was a reality and there are multiple ways in which I can participate with this world, you know, it all really helped kind of get me get me here mm-hmm. in, in a way, or at least say that it was something that could happen. At the heart of my favorite, you know, memories with, with Halo and other titles, and at the heart of my favorite experiences in development, it's it's always come back to the people, you know. And I, I think, I still think some of the best people I've ever met uh, and some of the most passionate have been in this scene, and I'm just so happy uh, to be a part of it um, each and every day, you know, on the good days and the bad.
1: I, I do. I want to slip in one quick, quick one before before we end, because uh, you've been in Seattle now for for a few weeks, and so I got to know when you need free Wi-Fi, where do you go?
2: So I'm actually in my building's uh, my building right now, my apartment complex, and they have these little like office spaces uh, that you can get in, and they they have have free wi-fi they have free wi-fi there's free (laughs) wi-fi and it's cool because they all have these windows um that look out into the street and into the lobby and there are three rooms and there's two two rooms only have one window and then there's one room that has two windows um that that gets both the view of outside and inside and, and it's hotly contested. And I'm very happy. To oh say did you get did you get the, the I got the good one. Um, <laughs> and so th- this free Wi-Fi that I'm using to chat with you guys today is, is all the sweeter. Thanks to friendship, <laughs> the two windows, and and, and voyeurism, <laughs> and competition. We yeah.
0: Well, well, thank you so much for, for coming on today. We, um, we had you really guys. a good
1: time. Yeah, it's been great catching up. It's always good to talk with you too.
0: Um, where can people find you and your work online?
1: Should you wish to be found, you can
2: you can find me on uh, the twitter.com. I think my handle is still just at meffenber uh I, if you ever want to look at the work that i've done in the past i include links on my website at michael effenberger.com
1: yeah they got to go check out that heart how yarla an amazing amazing game if it's available online anywhere uh Ectoplaza on the uh wii u If mm-hmm. you still got yours plugged in check out Ectoplaza. Aegis defenders on steam and many other platforms now right yeah and then black ops 4 is pretty rare but i think you might be able to find it <laughs> you, you might somewhere. be able to find black ops sure. yeah <laughs> all our listeners be excellent to each other be excellent to each other yes and mike thank you so much for joining us yeah thanks for having me guys
0: all right goodbye, goodbye. goodbye i love listening. you bye, bye. 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 Thank you so much for listening today this was a long one our guest today was michael effenberger you can follow him on twitter at meffenber our twitter handle is free wi-fi podcast and our theme song is free wi-fi by clover and sea life thank you so much for joining us today and we will see you in the next one